this time of worship. And Lord, thank you that we have been prepared to hear the word preached. And we pray now that as this word is unfolded, we could see Christ high and lifted up. We could behold indeed his great name. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. On New Year's Eve, 1961, Dr. W. A. Criswell preached a four and a half hour sermon to his church, First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. I'm going to preach that very sermon this morning. <laughs> and I'll spare you that. But in this sermon, he traces the theme of redemption through all 66 books of the canon. And in his intro, he famously asked this question. Did you know that a scarlet thread winds its way throughout the entire Bible? It is the story of redemption of mankind at the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. Of course, the implication from that thesis, which I strongly agree with, is that a thread is not broad and it's not splintered. It's very narrow because this particular thread is the only way for God to remain who he is as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his holiness, right? In his righteousness, in his justice, while at the same time determining to save people like us who are not these attributes. Conversely, the futile project of self-salvation, which is every other religion outside that thread, is well illustrated by a, an organization called World Weavers out of Thailand. Their program immerses people from all different kinds of faith traditions for a small fee. And so, for a small fee, they offer that you can be a Buddhist monk for a month. You can be a Muslim for a month, and etc. The idea is that there's no need to convert because religion helps people become better people. And any religion can work towards that end. We come to a text today that drives home that projects like World Weaver betray a tragic misunderstanding of who God is and his purposes in the world. As we saw last week, Adam and Eve, a historical couple, were created as the first priest kings, as the image of God to rule the world as God's vice regents. But they took the resources entrusted to them and they went rogue. They rebelled and this brought sin, this brought misery and death to the entire world. But God in his mercy, God in his grace and his loving kindness and his benevolence 
promised to reclaim the world through the seed of the woman. The Hebrew makes it clear that it will be a male individual, a son of the woman, if you will, who would be born, we would learn in time, as a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and Judah. A son, as we'll see next week, you have to come back next week for this, chapter 7, verse 19, who will be the hope of the world, not just for the Israelites. And this brings us to the covenant that God makes with David. And what we're going to see today, you break this covenant down into two parts, promises to David that would be realized in his lifetime and promises that would only be realized after his death. The first part of this covenant is the promise that would be realized during his lifetime. That's verses 8 to 11a. Notice with me in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, God has given Nathan the prophet a word. All right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. A literal pasture. He was a, he was a shepherd. It's interesting how God prepared him to be a shepherd by being a, a shepherd in the pasture. From following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Now, last time we saw that David desired to build a house for the Lord, but in God's economy of grace, it's actually the other way around. The Lord reminds him of that right out of the gate. I mean, right here in verse 8. That it will be God who does the building. We're just agents. We're just instruments. But it is God who does anything that has any redemptive and eternal value. This morning we were speaking to Nicholas Riddell. One of our former members who's now pastoring in Hamburg, Germany. And it's hard. It's hard. You know, Nicholas is a native German. And I told him, I said... Pastoring is harder than being a German fighting the Allied forces in World War II. He didn't laugh at that. It is. Pastoring is hard. And he's struggling. And he told me, he said, I just wonder if, if, my, if my preaching is taking effect, if there's any fruit from my preaching. And I took him to this passage right here. I said, Nicholas, you don't do the building. You're just an agent. It's God who does it. You're just an instrument. So don't take that job responsibility on your shoulders. And that's what God is teaching David. It is God who does the building. We're just human agents. Earthly wisdom, though, has the impulse for man to save God by our human works. And biblical salvation is actually the opposite. It is God who saves men by his works. 
by his works alone. And, and the Lord drives home here that, that David can trust his faithfulness, the Lord's faithfulness in the future because of his faithfulness in the past. That's, a, that's an important, timely word for us as well. And, and this faithfulness would include making David's name great. Notice, like the great ones of the earth, in particular, Abraham. Keep in mind, in contrast to the moral tragedy that we saw in Genesis 11, by the way, that has not gone away, where all the nations come together and they build a temple in order to make a name for themselves. That's our impulse, isn't it? Abraham was to bear the name that God would give him. Abraham's name would be made great by God. And so while all the names of the Babel builders are long forgotten, we still remember Abraham's name. And the Lord's going to do the same for David. And this just reminds me that our significance, our lasting significance, is found in what God does. It's not in what we achieve. And that's so comforting, isn't it? Because we recognize how puny our efforts are at the end of the day. But not only would he give him a name, he promised him a place and he promised him rest. Notice in verse, uh, verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. I love that. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. There are 31 battles in the book of Judges. 31 battles. And God is promising now rest uh, for David and, and, and through David. And he says, I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. That is a beautiful and, and glorious hope for David. A place where shalom vandalism exists no more. Again, note, and be disturbed no more. This is a promise of another Eden. In fact, the land of, of Canaan, the promised land, was depicted a, a, as a, another Eden. Isaiah 51, verse 3, all right? And, and I believe it, it, it's topological. It speaks of a, of a new heavens and a new earth. That's how Isaiah depicts it in Isaiah 65 and 66. And he also promises David rest. We saw last week that, that rest is freedom from everything that wearies and everything that disturbs. Boy, that's what our hearts cry for, isn't it? Everything that wearies and everything that disturbs. Now, the words here are echoing intentionally a promise made to Abraham that was sung after the Exodus in Exodus 15, verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. 
the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So we see here there are three elements to this promise that he makes to David that will be fulfilled in his lifetime. The Lord will make David's name great. He will provide a place for Israel where she will no longer be oppressed. And she will give, or God will give, rest for David's enemy, from David's enemies. All three promises echo the promises made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, this is a, a partial fulfillment and a means of fulfillment to the promise made to Abraham. So these echoes echo the promises to Abraham, but they also echo in our own hearts. Think about this, a name, a place, and rest. Our hearts long for all three things. Our name, that is significance, that our, that our lives would matter in the end. A place, a place of, of identity and, and shelter and, and, and safety and rest. It's what our hearts long for. These promises resonate with us because we're hardwired for them. And all of our heart problems, I would, I would submit to you this morning, all of our heart problems are the result of failing to recognize that these three promises come mediated to us through the Messiah. At this point in time, it was David. But we seek to find these promises in an unmediated way, and that's behind our problems. Well, those are the promises that David was made in his lifetime to be fulfilled. And the second part of this passage, perhaps the most important part of this passage, I would say, are the promises to be fulfilled after David's death. Notice with me in the second part of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, this promise is the Lord's counterpunch to David's question in verse 5, where he desires to build the Lord a house, and the Lord declares to him that the Lord will make a house for him. All right? God does not need us. We saw last week that he, he is assay, the assayative God, means that, that he does not need us. And notice in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's a metaphor for death, right? I will raise up your offspring. I love that. We'll come back to that. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wow, the offspring of David will have a kingdom that is established forever. Now, this is a wordplay on the word house. David wants to build a house that is a temple for the Lord, but the Lord countered that by promising David an everlasting house, which refers to a dynasty, a dynasty forever. 
Now, there's three things about this promise. It, it extends beyond David's lifetime. And that's hopeful for us as well. Remember this, that many of the promises that our hearts long for, you may not see in this life fulfilled. That doesn't mean they won't be fulfilled. All right? And so here's a promise made to David, just like God promised Abraham the land. And all Abraham ever possessed was a small plot of land in Hebron, right? So God promises this to David, but it's beyond his lifetime. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, death does not annul God's promise to David. Death is not the final word for the believer. Secondly, the promise centers on your offspring, which could also be translated seed. All right, now that word is prominent in the promises made to Abraham. So there's a connection there that is going to come through Abraham's offspring. And now we're seeing it's going to come through David's offspring. It's a key word. And then third, it would be the kingdom of David's offspring that would be established by the Lord. And note, in due time, this offspring would build a house. He would build a temple for the Lord's name, but it would be as an expression of the establishment of this offspring's throne, a throne that will be forever. That, that word forever is found eight times in this chapter. It's a very important word. And not only will the Lord give him a forever throne, he will be a forever son. Look with me in verse 14. Remarkable section here of this covenant. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. The father-son relationship is important in the Davidic covenant. Prior to David, adoption language, and this is what this is, was used for Israel as a whole. As a corporate entity, Israel was the son of God. For instance, at the Exodus, Moses came to Pharaoh with this demand. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. We see that in Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. This meant that at this point in redemptive history, and remember, redemptive history is always progressive. It's always developing. It's always escalating. Israel is functioning as a macro atom. In fact, Luke makes it very clear in his genealogy where he traces Jesus all the way back to Adam in Luke 3.38 that Adam was the son of God. And now in Exodus 4, Israel is functioning as the son of God, the corporate son, God's representative. In other words, Israel has inherited this role 
And why is that important? Because now, in redemptive history, at this point where God comes to David and makes covenant, it's the king who will be in this father-son relationship with the Lord. This signals that the king of Israel is embodying the vocation given to the nation and to the first son, Adam. He's embodying, embodying in his person, in his vocation, what God had originally entrusted to Adam and then to the corporate Adam, Israel. This is vital for us understanding the redemptive storyline of the Bible. All right? Now it's found in the king, the Davidic king. And here's why this is important. With this covenant made with David, the corporate identity of the Son of God is now focused on the single person of the Davidic king. The fortunes of Israel would now turn on the iniquity or the righteousness of this son. On whether David and his offspring were faithful to the terms of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant made with Israel at Sinai. Now the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy 28, which are the blessings and curses of the covenant made with Israel at Sinai through Moses, are contingent upon the obedience or the disobedience of the king. As the one goes, so goes the many. If the king is faithful, the nation is deemed as faithful. You think it's preparing us for something? The king is unfaithful, the nation as a whole is considered unfaithful. And this was played out in the book of Kings. Let me give you a couple of examples. According to 1 Kings 11, 9 to 13, the Lord was angry with Solomon because he had gone after other gods. And as a result, he warned, listen, in verse 11 of 1 Kings 11, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. And the division of the nation in 931 affected all 12 tribes. All 12 tribes, but it, it was because of Solomon's idolatry. All 12 were affected because of the disobedience of the king. Another example, 1 Kings 21. After Ahab had forcibly taken Naboth's vineyard, it's a horrible, horrible narrative there. And then Naboth was killed in the process, murdered by the wife, Jezebel. Of course, Ahab had permitted that. And Elijah prophesied judgment on Ahab as a result. And Ahab humbled himself. And he repented. And the Lord decided not to bring judgment in Ahab's day. And so the entire kingdom was preserved by the king's repentance. As the king goes, so goes the people. 
Conversely, Judah suffered exile, right? Because, 2 Kings 24, of the sins of Manasseh, the king. Because of his sins, the whole nation, or the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were exiled. And often in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you see this motif, when the king is sick, or the king's son is sick, it's symbolic of the spiritual health of the nation. Let me just give you a couple of examples there. 1 Kings 14, 2 Kings 1, 2 Kings 20. But here's the promise to David. The promise that is that even if the kingdom is spiritually sick or eventually goes into exile for that matter, because we know it will, the Lord's promise cannot be annulled by sin. We saw that it cannot be annulled by death, and it cannot be annulled by sin. Yes, sin will bring disaster on any individual king and the people that king is ruling over, and can even bring about an interrupted kingdom, as we see in the 70 years of exile. But the promise to David can no more be annulled by sin than it can be by death. But ultimately, the promise that God is making to David requires an obedient king. That's very clear in the text, isn't it? Requires an obedient king. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. But if he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. David's offspring needs one who will come, who will establish his house forever. That brings us to the end of this covenant, 16 and 17. In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the promise that God makes to David And then he says, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So death, sin, nor time, for that matter, will exhaust God's promises that he makes to David. But the obvious question is, how can a king's kingdom endure forever? That's clearly the question. I mean, is is this an exaggeration? Did Nathan hear God wrong when he gave these words to David? No. Let me offer you a term that is often employed by Old Testament students. It's a term called telescoping. What do I mean by telescoping? This refers to the way in, in which prophecies speak of a distant event, all right? But also include a near fulfillment, which kind of foreshadows that distant fulfillment. So God promised to bless the nations through Abraham's seed. Well, who was Abraham's seed? Well, his first seed was his son, 
Isaac. We know ultimately, Paul says in Galatians 3.16, that the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham was one. Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.16. And so there was a, an, an immediate fulfillment that foreshadowed a, a greater fulfillment. And we say that here. These promises will be fulfilled in the short term by Solomon. It's Solomon who's going to build the temple, right? It will be through Solomon that David's name will be exalted to the ends of the earth. Luke Fusion preached on that last week, Sunday night. As the queen of Sheba comes and beholds the glory of God in the Davidic king. So it's going to be fulfilled in Solomon in a kind of installment plan. But Solomon will die. And ultimately, his kingdom will fall, won't it? It's going to be divided in two. And ultimately, the temple will be destroyed that Solomon spent all that time, all those resources building. And so this speaks to someone greater than Solomon, much greater than Solomon. In fact, Israel will fall to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom of Judah will be deported three times by the Babylonians, starting in 605 B.C. And that's what bothers the people of God during the time of the exile. They understand this covenant. What bothers the psalmist writing from exile in, in Psalm 89, for instance, is that the promises made to David seem to be annulled. Listen to Psalm 89, verse 39. You have renounced the covenant. The psalmist is speaking to the Lord. And he says, you've renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. It made no sense to the, to the psalmist. This seemed inconsistent with the permanence of the Davidic covenant. That's what he's musing on, the Davidic covenant. And the Lord, though, reminds the psalmist that the covenant has conditions. Psalm 89, listen to verse 29. I will establish his offspring forever. This is the Lord speaking to the psalmist who's in exile and his throne as the days of the heavens. But if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. The psalmist is hearing from the Lord, this is why you're in exile. Because I am a faithful God, but I also promised if the king was unfaithful, I was going to punish him with the rod of men. And that's exactly what's happening here. So how do we resolve? This is the great tension of the Old Testament. How do we resolve this tension between the conditional and the unconditional aspects of this covenant? God promised David an everlasting kingdom, a great name forever. And yet the kings have to be obedient. How do you resolve this tension? 
Well, the answer is found in that God will fulfill his covenant promise, but the fulfillment will be realized only with an obedient king. And even after Israel was exiled, the writing prophets, they foresaw a day. Every single one of those prophets, every single one of them, they saw a day that was coming with the ideal David. For instance, Ezekiel 34, listen to this, verse 22. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. He's going to rescue the flock who's in exile. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now think about this. David has been dead for 300 years when Ezekiel makes this prophecy. And yet he said, I'm going to rescue my flock with my servant David. There's another David coming, a greater one than Solomon, greater than any of these other kings who were all disciplined. That's why they're in exile. And I, the Lord, will be their God. Listen to this. And my servant David shall be prince among them. This is not promising some kind of reincarnation. This is promising that an offspring from David will come and he will bring about the rescue. This David will be the faithful son. It's interesting that in Hebrews 1, verse, verse 5, that the words of chapter 7, verse 14 in our text are, are explicitly repeated, speaking about Jesus. Listen to this. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Think about that. The promise was made to David about his offspring. And the writer of Hebrews who's concerned about believers who are potentially rejecting the faith because of persecution. He says, why would you turn from this one? He's the one that's been promised. The faithful son. He applies it to Jesus as Messiah. Jesus will inherit David's role. And in the New Testament, the identity of Jesus as the son of God signals that the promised offspring of David is here. Of course, the New Testament teaches us that, that Jesus is the Son of God in a deeper eternal sense. He is not the Son of God by adoption. He is the Son of God by eternal generation. In other words, it will take more than a mere human king. We need one who is both human, fully human, and fully divine to rescue the flock, to use Ezekiel's language. One who is an obedient son. And what did the voice from heaven say when Jesus was baptized? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. All those other sons from David came under my discipline. They did not please me. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. The well-pleasing son who comes to fulfill all righteousness. But one who can also satisfy divine justice on sin. Why? Because if he's going to have a kingdom, there has to be subjects in the kingdom. But if we're going to be able to enter that kingdom, we have to be made fit to enter that kingdom. And so this king will come, and here's what he's going to do. Through his substitutionary work on the cross, God will pardon the iniquity of his people. 
Indeed, through this representative son, the people of God will receive double for all their sins. Isaiah 40, verse 2. Now, what do we mean by double for all their sins? Not in the sense of excessive punishment, but in the sense of dealing with our sin that includes realities beyond our comprehension. This atonement will be comprehensive in scope. And this is the point when Jesus is emphasized by Matthew and Mark at the very beginning of their Gospels. In the very first verse of their Gospels, he says, He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the true and faithful David. In fact, Luke, listen to this, Luke 1. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. What's he musing on here? Zechariah. Promise made to David. You never get away from this covenant after 2 Samuel 7. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. But how will this mercy come without impugning God's character? How can it be merciful to people like us without impugning his character as holy and righteous? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us. Notice Christ, that's the Messiah, the anointed one. He's connecting him to David. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And when this king was cursed, he was absorbing all the sanctions of the covenant for covenant breakers like us. But in the fulfillment of that promise made to David, notice, let's go back to this and we'll close. He promised David, I will raise up your offspring after you. Now, I think this promise is greater than David could have ever conceived. I will raise up for your offspring after you. This will become a remarkable prophetic hope for the believers in exile. Because there's no king. The Davidic throne, the, the line is dead. This will require a miracle for God to raise up an offspring from David. How will he raise up an offspring when the line is dead? The answer is resurrection. Paul would preach this in Acts 13. Listen to this in verse 32. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to his children. Notice, by raising Jesus. There you are. There's the fulfillment. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Do you get that? Jesus was raised, and in so doing, the blessings of David were mediated to the people of God. Indeed, there is a thread that runs its way throughout the Bible that finds its end in Jesus, the son of David. It's the story of redemption. Centered on a king who now reigns as the faithful Adam who now reigns as the faithful Israel, who, who now reigns as the faithful Davidic king. And what that reign means to us 
everyone that's here, every believer, there's nothing in his life, in your life, that, that he can't fix. Nothing. Why? Because he's reigning. And when he reigns, his resurrection life, he, he, he comes and he reverses what's broken. He, he rescues what's in peril. And he resurrects what's dead. That's what the reign of our king does. And that's also a word to those here today that have not trusted in Jesus, the king. He comes to resurrect, to save that which needs saving. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is the fulfillment of the blessing, the promise made to David. And, the, and one of the promises to us is that if you will come to this king, if you will repent of your sins and trust in him, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. They will be brought underneath the feet of our Christ. And that's what the table reminds us. It's what it drives home to us. Uh, we observe the table every first Sunday of every month. For those of you that are visiting with us, we, we would invite you to partake with us on a couple of conditions that you have been born again. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, right? John 3. And that you are a member in good standing of a like-minded church that believes that gospel. You've been baptized and, and you are a member in good standing of a like-minded church that believes that gospel. But before we partake, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to partake rightly. Father, thank you that we have a king. Thank you that we have a king who is seated at your right hand, which signals the work is finished. And thank you for the the table that reminds us of that. Thank you for the Lord's Supper, which is, Lord, the church's act of communing with our King, our Christ, and each other, and of commemorating his death by partaking of the bread and the cup. But we also recognize it's not just a corporate act. It, it, it's a believer's individual act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing our commitment to him and to each other. Thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. Lord, if there's any sin that we need to uh, repent of, before we partake, we pray your spirit would, would convict us. Thank you that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Thank you that he has become a curse for us. So that we might be justified by faith in him. And we thank you for this table that reminds us of that reality. Amen.